Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sit and Listen, bringing scientists to you. Sit and Listen is a production of Science in the News, a graduate student-run organization at Harvard University that's committed to bridging the communication gap between scientists and, well, the rest of the world. My name is Vinnie Money. My name is Amy Gilson. My name is Andrew Morantan. My name is Angela Shee, and today we'll be talking to you about allergies. Happy December, everyone. Happy December! It's the start of the holiday season here in the U.S., and with the holiday season comes food, family, and festivities. But family get-togethers might not all be fun and games. Imagine yourself at a holiday dinner at your Aunt Edna's house. Cousin Craig enters the house, sits down on Aunt Edna's couch, is given the side-eye by Aunt Edna's cat, and immediately begins sneezing. Cousin Becky snacks on a juicy pear before dinner time and notices that her throat is starting to feel tight and her eyes are itching. Little Robbie washes his hands with Aunt Edna's new rose-scented soap and finds that his skin has turned red and bumpy. What's going on here? Allergies. The bane of people who can't snack on peanut butter and banana sandwiches, who can't cuddle up to our favorite furry companions on a bad day, and who want to love spring or autumn but are assaulted on all sides by annoying invisible particles. Allergies plague people seemingly indiscriminately, and symptoms can vary from an itchy nose and watery eyes to hives or difficulty breathing. In developed countries, about 20% of people have hay fever, 20% of people have had some sort of allergic skin reaction in their lifetime, and 6% of people have had at least one food allergy. So I get seasonal allergies in the New England fall and know firsthand how terrible some of the symptoms can be. But what is it that's making me sick? Well, Angela, allergies aren't making you sick in the traditional sense. They're actually a product of an immune system misfire. Allergies are a particular type of hyperactive immune response to what we call an allergen, which is something that triggers an allergy. These allergens are components of things that are typically found in your environment, like pollen or pet dander, or even components of food, such as nuts or shellfish. What's interesting to me about allergies is that they tend to be against things that are safe for most people. In fact, researchers have discovered that the immune system responds to these allergens in a completely different manner from the immune system responding to pathogenic bacteria or viruses, such as those that cause the common cold or strep throat. While some of these things may look the same on the surface in terms of symptoms, what's going on on the inside is a totally different ballgame. Now hold on a second here. So my immune system can handle these pathogens, these cold viruses and flus and whatnot, perfectly fine. But when it comes to pet dander or, or peanuts, it messes up. So what's going on here? That is the million or rather billion dollar question that we as researchers are still trying to better understand. The immune system is a wonderfully complex system that learns about things in its environment and determines, well, based on how the signals are received, how the body will respond to a new object it encounters, be it harmless or harmful. The immune system recognizes and distinguishes the things that it encounters by looking for distinct patterns in the components that make up the biological entities, like proteins, sugars, fats, and or any combination of the three. The immune system recognizes these patterns through specific receptors, somewhat like antenna, that are for the most part on the surface of the cells of the immune system, white blood cells. Not only does the immune system see and feel these patterns, it for the most part knows how to respond to them. Imagine almost like an FBI agent trained to respond to particular situations. Some patterns and responses are already programmed into the immune system at birth, but as we encounter various pathogens and evolve through life, the immune system also learns and programs more patterns and responses into its database. The response to bacteria and viruses elicits a different response than the one to allergens. 
and we don't really understand this part very well. But you can imagine them as two different police agencies trained for different tasks. One fights the criminal bacteria and viruses that make you sick. The other is misguided in a way and engages in attack against peanuts and oysters instead. But how would peanuts end up on a most wanted list? How would you become allergic to something like that in the first place? So this seems to be determined the very first time that you encounter an allergen through a process that's called sensitization. So let's take a little trip to a town nearby. Let's say you've encountered peanut protein. We'll call him Mr. Peanut. Mr. Peanut shows up in this small town for the very first time. He's unknown to the local folks, so the beat cop that's making her rounds notices him and thinks that it's suspicious that he's loitering. The cop is like the first cell on the scene in the immune system and is called the antigen-presenting cell. Maybe it's a good day and the antigen-presenting cell just tips her hat and keeps walking, or even puts Mr. Peanut on the list of town guests. But maybe she mistakes Mr. Peanut for a criminal and calls the police chief a T-cell, who then alerts the rest of the allergy police force about the loitering legume. The T-cell recognizes the specific patterns from an allergen, so like Mr. Peanut's head and hat, for example, kind of like a mugshot, and then instructs the commanding officer, a B-cell, to train the troops, so to speak, and produce something called an antibody or immunoglobulin. An antibody is a special type of protein produced by your bodies that binds to very specific proteins and acts as antennas, which allow the immune system to respond accordingly. In allergic responses, there is a very specific and special type of antibody called immunoglobulin E, or IgE, the subsequent police responders, which can then initiate the allergic response to an allergen with the memory of a mugshot the next time the body sees it after the sensitization. Mr. Peanut's mugshot, then, is now all over town, but he's released from custody because he's really not that harmful. But the problem is now that he has priors, so now anytime Mr. Peanut shows up again, he'll be recognized and arrested right away. Okay, but wait, this sounds very similar to how immune responses against bacteria or viruses usually work. So the immune system recognizes the bacteria or virus as harmful and then goes after it. How is an allergic response different from that? Is it that um, when you're fighting off bacteria and viruses, you always recognize them as bad and you always attack them, them, whereas there's like a process that's like murky process of sensitization when it comes to allergies? Like that's the difference? Right. So in a, if, if everything's working properly against a particular bacteria or virus and it's not sufficiently wily to evade the immune system, then you have the appropriate response, danger response. Whereas with sensitization, we, we aren't really sh uh, sure of the processes that are involved in sort of priming the T cell for this inappropriate response. And it's also different kinds of cells that are um, involved in the two responses. Right, exactly. Cool. So it's actually different types of T cells, so different types of chiefs that are instructing their police task force in a different way. So we're talking about IgE, I assume that there are different kinds of immunoglobulins that can be produced, right? So is it the IgE then that leads to a different immune response the second time you see an allergen? That's absolutely correct. So after sensitization, we now have these IgE hanging around in our immune system. And the IgE basically serves as the antenna on the surface of a type of immune cell that's called the mast cell, which is stationed in most of our body's tissues and is loaded with firearms. And these firearms that we're talking about are agents called histamine and heparin. And when the IgE antenna sees an abundance of the allergen coming through the body, for example, when you breathe in pollen, 
it flips the switch for the mast cell to fire its contents, histamine and more, which then signal to the rest of the body and wreak havoc. Mm-hmm. So there's only one kind of IgE, right? Or there are multiple kinds of IgE. So IgE is one type of class of antibody that can bind to the mast cell, but you actually have a bunch of different types of IgE that are in your body that recognize various patterns. So maybe there's one kind of IgE that binds to peanut proteins, and if that happens in the mast cell, it's like, all right, release the heparin. But the mast cell is decorated with all sorts of different kinds of IgEs, so it can recognize all sorts of different kinds of allergens, like whatever you're allergic to. Right. That's absolutely right. So depending on how much of your body is actually flooded with histamine, you can have varying degrees of an immune reaction from just annoying to probably fatal. When these reactions occur, such as histamine release, the first immediate response is a swelling of the blood vessels. And you might notice this as redness or local swelling, like in a bug bite. Or like when I breathe in pollen and my nose, throat, and eyes, so this all face area bit, gets affected. In some severe cases, we can encounter a systemic response, meaning affecting the full body, called anaphylaxis that spreads throughout the entire body and can cause low blood pressure, swelling of tissues, constriction of the airways, and it can also be very fatal if not responded to appropriately. Okay, so this is what the people carry around those EpiPens for, right? They they get a little bit of exposure to nuts, maybe in a peanut butter sandwich or something. They start swelling up, and they inject themselves with this, right? And then they're good to go, right? That's that's it. So for anaphylaxis, EpiPens, which contain epinephrine or adrenaline, can help to relieve some of the most life-threatening symptoms of anaphylaxis. So basically... The adrenaline helps by re-regulating the blood flow through the constriction and dilation of different blood vessels. So you no longer have low blood pressure in some places and high blood pressure in other places. And unfortunately, this is a temporary solution. Um, It just keeps some of the more severe effects of the allergies at bay while you have time to treat the more root causes. So you're not dying while somebody can actually go help your immune system re-regulate itself. That's why if you or a friend are forced to use an EpiPen, um, you should make sure that you get to a hospital right away, even if your symptoms seem to be getting better because you might have another allergic flare if you don't treat the immune system at its root. But you don't always need an EpiPen for your allergies. So if you're just allergic to pollen or something like that, then I guess, you know, like my mom would take Claritin. But how do drugs like Claritin and Benadryl work? Uh, yeah, good question, Amy. So that is that is completely correct. Thank goodness we don't have to use EpiPens for every allergy or allergic reaction. Antihistamines are what you think of when you think of most seasonal and pet allergy medications, such as Claritin, Allegra, and Benadryl. These drugs bind to proteins that histamines would normally interact with, causing them to no longer be able to work as usual and causing their effects to be minimized. It's kind of like having a temporary bulletproof shield so um, the histamine firearms don't actually work. But some drugs, like Benadryl, also affect other processes in the body, which is why you might feel drowsy when you take it. Um, Other drugs, like mast cell stabilizers, focus on preventing the mast cells from being able to release histamines in the first place. This means that the histamines won't be able to start the allergic response, as if you locked up the firearm cabinet so mast cells have no firepower. Antihistamines and mast cell stabilizers work on the parts of the immune system that impact allergies at its core, but other drugs can target the broader actions of the immune system. As you mentioned, Vinny, um, a little while ago, once an allergic response occurs, the other parts of the immune system leap into action and mount an intense defense. 
Drug classes like glucocorticoids or steroids can help the immune system calm down a little by reducing inflammation. One more question. Histamines. What exactly is it? Is it a protein? Is it a, uh, 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 what's going on there? So yeah, it's histamine is basically like a, a chemical that's produced by the body that causes a swelling of the blood vessels and can uh, function as a neurotransmitter. So it's signaling to all of the neurons that are in the area to then regulate the rest of the immune response. Okay, okay. Let's say I get an autoimmune disease, right, AIDS or something like that. My white blood cells, they're shot, right? So they can't work. So does that mean that I don't have any more allergies? You know, unfortunately, no. So in patients with AIDS, the T cells are the players that are compromised. And remember that T cells are involved in this sensitization process and producing IgE. So while they may not as quickly develop new allergies since the sensitization process might be impaired, if they already have the IgE in their system that recognizes allergens, they would be very likely to still have an allergic reaction. You know, it seems like all these allergies are just a real burden on society here, at least on, you know, people like you and me. So given that, why isn't it that evolution, you know, over the years hasn't got rid of this? I mean, it seems like it doesn't do anything for us except make me not be able to enjoy a nice, good peanut butter jelly sandwich. (laughs) So while there are a few theories as to why we evolved this type of immunity in the first place, one of the most accepted and tested explanations is that we actually evolved this in order to respond to large parasites such as worms. So let's think about the scale of invaders that we're fighting relative to the sizes of the various immune weapons that we have in our body. If we take an immune cell to be about the size of a car, a regular bacteria or virus tends to be, at most, the size of a steering wheel. However, parasites like a tapeworm or even ticks and lice can be over a thousand times the size of an immune cell. So think about an immune cell like the size of a car trying to take down a large cargo ship, which is the parasite. But the immune cells, instead of running away from battle, however, Um, let's say in this case the mast cell, releases in a response similar to an allergy, histamine and other factors that are instructing the blood cells, uh, the blood vessels to enlarge and recruit more immune cells to come and fight the bug off through extra firepower. So bringing in big big guns in the tanks and creating a little environment where the parasite can't effectively survive. We've examined these immune responses of people and animals affected by parasites and seen that it occurs in a very similar manner and mediated by the same players such as IgE. So this allergy response can actually be good when it's needed. And maybe in that case, it's more like a, it's not an allergy response, it's like a parasite response, but we just don't experience it as that if we're not being infected by by parasites. But I still don't really get why we would be misusing this response, you know, targeting things that are totally unrelated to parasites. Right. So immunologists and allergists across the world are still attempting to understand this. One idea is that the IgE itself can be cross-reactive. So remember that IgE recognizes a particular pattern on a protein, so like Mr. Peanut's top hat and monocle. If for some reason the good IgE can also recognize a potentially would-be harmless allergen, an allergic reaction can also be initiated sort of like a cop pulling over a vehicle that matches the description of the getaway car, except that the license plate is a mismatch. We call this phenomenon cross-reactivity, and there's a lot of work that is looking into this as well. So I've also heard this theory called the hygiene hypothesis, um, something about humans now being too clean since we're afraid of touching anything or eating anything, and we should just let our kids roll around in the dirt and, you know, eat whatever they want to put it in their mouths. So what is this? 
Right. This is also very important. So the hygiene hypothesis is the idea that exposure to all this nasty stuff that these responses were originally designed for, like worms and microbes, when we're kids, will sort of train our immune systems to not overreact when we see innocuous allergens in our environment. So basically, like growing up in increasingly sterile environments may have led us to more people uh, developing allergies because our bodies may not learn to use IgE in the right way. And scientists have done some studies looking at this. So, for example, looking at kids who grew up on farms versus those who grew up in non-farming households. And what's been found um, actually for decades, this is a really consistent observation, is that kids who grew up on farms had a 25% of having allergies like hay fever, while non-farm kids had a whooping 44% chance of allergy. This is called the farm effect. So basically, if you're not exposed to something early on, then there's a chance that you might be developing an allergy to it later because your body has never seen that thing before. So there might be a more of a chance that you'll be like, oh, this is something that I need to be afraid of. Right, exactly. That's still, I guess, a theory and a correlate as opposed to something that's been really tried and tested. So just like a dirtier environment can help us train to use our IgE in the right way, having an appropriately, I guess, dirty gut does this too. Well, okay, not dirty, but I guess the diverse bacteria that live in our intestines can really help with this. Um, When you take antibiotics, this actually changes our gut bacteria, as you may be well aware of. And in fact, there are some studies that show that heavy antibiotic use in early life actually correlates with an increased risk of food allergy development. We also know that there's some microbial transfer during childbirth and breastfeeding. I also read the other day about a study um, showing that C-section babies are something like five times as likely to develop allergies, again, correlation, as their vaginal birth counterparts. So maybe the microbiota has something to do with this. So picking up all the, um, all the bacteria that get transferred from the vagina to the baby is actually like a good thing. All right. I've heard that moms can pass certain things onto their babies, uh, you know, through that umbilical cord or, or, or the whole process of pregnancy. So since all this allergy stuff is mediated by these IgE proteins, does that mean that these get passed to the baby as well? That's a great question, but not so simple. So some types of antibodies are actually passed on during gestation and others during breastfeeding. And there are several types that we talked about. Or we call them isotypes of antibodies. And only some of them can be transferred like this. IgE, which mediates allergies, can't be transferred from mom to child. So is there any correlation with uh, socioeconomic status uh, and the prevalence of allergies? Socioeconomic status has definitely been studied in relation to allergy rates, although it definitely depends on what kind of allergy that we're talking about here. There was one study that showed that allergies are more prevalent amongst higher income families. And another publication by the Center for Disease Control, or the CDC, showed that there is a subtle but significant trend correlating higher income to higher prevalence of food and respiratory allergies. Although location, although location and what foods that people are exposed to definitely play a role in what kind of allergies they get. But you also mentioned access to health care. So do you think that a lot of allergies are just going undiagnosed in lower income populations? Yeah, that might be true. And these findings should actually definitely be viewed with a grain of salt because they're almost changing every day. So factors like diagnoses and reporting can influence these trends, along with differences in lifestyle and diet and so on, like Angela mentioned. And what we've described so far are mostly only correlations and not proven causations. 
There are also some correlative data showing that children are more likely to have allergies if their parents or siblings have allergies. So is this saying that there's like a genetic cause for allergies? This is still something we're trying to fish around for. So currently there isn't much of a consensus on strong direct genetic causes for allergies as we know them. But the closest correlate that we have to allergy development, at least with food allergies, is that children or infants with eczema are at much higher risk for developing allergies. Um, eczema, or dermatitis, for those of you who don't know, is an inflammatory skin condition, which usually manifests in like itchiness, redness, blisters, or flaking of the skin. In a good number of eczema patients, there's actually a mutation in a protein called filaggrin, which is important for keeping physical barriers, such as the foundations between cells of the skin, intact. Is it possible that you can sort of counteract the sensitization? Yeah, sensitization is heavily context-dependent. So if instead of teaching the immune system to have an allergic response to a protein, we actually taught it to have a tolerant response to an allergen, we may actually be able to avoid a full-blown allergic reaction, or at the very least, dampen the effects. And each part of the body is equipped with a different array of immune cells. And this makes sense in the immune cells uh, acting sort of as the local police patrolling their areas and knowing the map and people better than, for instance, a neighboring department's police officer. And it is thought that potentially the antigen-presenting cells, so the initiators of sensitization, the beat cops, in the gut may be more poised to educate the T cells to keep their cool rather than start an allergic sensitization. And so this would make sense, since every time you eat some type of food, you don't want your immune system to go totally crazy. You'd like to keep it at bay unless there's a crazy invader. So more researchers are actually trying to uncover the exact ways that this might be true, but we call this idea oral tolerance. So you'll see some studies that are looking at oral immunotherapy or sublingual immunotherapy for allergies, where you feed people small amounts of allergen in order to get them to tolerate it. But unfortunately, this has only so far had limited efficacy in adults. But there's actually, so this, even though this may not really work that well in adults, um, as Amy alluded to earlier, it's possible that as as infants or as uh, in, in early childhood, you um, sort of are more pliable and that your immune system is sort of trying to learn a lot more. So there's this great landmark prevention study that was uh, published earlier this year called the LEAP study, which is a prevention study for allergy, peanut allergies in infants. A number of years ago, this guy named Dr. Gideon Lack, a scientist in the UK, found that the children in the UK were developing allergies to peanuts at a far higher rate than a very similar demographic that was found in Israel, suggesting that maybe genetics may not tell the whole story. And so digging deeper, he found that children in Israel regularly snacked on this peanut-containing puff called bamba, while those in the UK were less exposed to peanuts. He then thought, I mean, could actually eating or being exposed to peanuts early in life in the right way actually prevent allergy from happening? So he started the LEAP study, where he and his colleagues enrolled infants from the ages of four to nine months who were at high risk for developing peanut allergy based on their eczema symptoms. And he took half of that group and exposed, introduced this peanut product called Bamba into their diet for the first year of life, while leaving the other half unexposed to peanuts in their diet. He then monitored the children for about five years. And strikingly, what he found was that giving children peanut products in their early infancy reduced their risk of peanut allergy development by about 70 percent. 
This is like a huge finding because it showed that there could be potentially a way to prevent allergy development, not by avoiding, which was the original recommendation, but rather by introducing the allergen early on in life. And in fact, this has also sort of changed everybody's perspectives across the board. And uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics and associations of immunologists are all now recommending to introduce peanut allergen early on in life. And the study also demonstrated that there may be some sort of window of opportunity in early life to educate the immune system. And also, um, strikingly and exciting for immunologists, is that the oral route of administration can what we call sort of tolerize the immune system to prevent it from being sensitized to an allergic reaction. So that is to say eating things. You should just eat the thing. (laughs) Right. And this is really the first strong study to show this. And uh, the way that has changed everyone's perspectives on how to manage immunotherapy and um, how to handle this in infants, uh, it's, it's a pretty remarkable thing. Vinny, I know you're an immunologist, but also that your graduate work isn't exactly in this area. So I was wondering how you actually learned so much about this topic. That's an interesting question. So I actually, I, I believe that as a grad student, you're just supposed to be the sponge and you're supposed to find ways to explore different scientific topics and in this day and age also build a skill set that will be versatile for potentially many other different career options. And in my exploration of opportunities around me, I recently got involved with a startup company called Antera Therapeutics, which is actually developing an allergy prevention medical food for infants that's based on the LEAP study that we just talked about. And we'll actually be launching the very first regimen this month. So I'm using my immunologist hat side there to help out while also picking up some very invaluable non-scientific skills and experiences. I enjoy being able to wear a lot of hats, and it definitely thinks, helps me think about my research in different ways, too, as does podcasting. Also, a lot of hats will help you keep warm in the winter because <laughs> it's getting real cold here. It is getting real cold here. All right. And now for a minute of science policy. In Canada, federal scientists are now free to speak with the press again after PM Justin Trudeau reversed the previous government's so-called muzzle policy. That policy required any federal scientist who wanted to speak with the press to go through many layers of federal approval. This policy was broadly interpreted as an attempt to silence Canadian climate scientists, though it affected all scientists in the government. For example, it once blocked the head of molecular genetics for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans from talking to the press about declining salmon populations. In our CRISPR podcast, we discussed the possibility of using gene editing to treat blood diseases. Since then, a baby named Layla was the first person to actually be saved by gene editing. Layla suffered from leukemia, a cancer of the blood and bone marrow. An experimental treatment would have used gene editing to turn some of Layla's own immune cells, T-cells to be specific, into cancer-killing machines. But Layla didn't have enough T-cells to use, and this posed a problem. If a donor's cells were used instead of Layla's, her body might recognize them as foreign and attack them. Not good for treatment. So in order to treat Layla, Wasim Kasim of University College London used a well-established gene editing technique called Talon, so not CRISPR, to modify, don- to modify donor T cells so that they would be invisible to the cells in Layla's body while carrying out their crucial cancer-fighting function. And so far, the cancer has no signs of returning. So we've learned a lot about allergies. Maybe it's time to apply what we've learned. Our bodies are constantly reacting to stimuli, and sometimes the reactions are not all good. But is it an allergy? All right, so let me give you some scenarios. 
Scenario one, I've moved from the West Coast to the East Coast to go to college. I've never had allergies before, but one cool, crisp morning, I noticed that my throat and eyes are itchy and my sinuses are going haywire. Is this allergies or did people on the subway leave their rhinoviruses all over the place? It could be allergies. Maybe because you haven't been exposed to local pollens, you might have an allergic response to them. Or it could be IgE cross-reactivity. Scenario number two. It's peach season. I'm trying to enjoy my favorite fruit here when suddenly I feel my mouth and tongue tingling, almost like a numbness. Can I have allergies to a fruit I have enjoyed in the past? There's actually this thing called oral allergy syndrome um, where you get a tingly sensation after eating something like a fruit. And it's not an allergy to the fruit per se, but it's an allergy to birch pollen, which sometimes coats the fruit and causes this sensation So from the tree. So maybe next time, cook your fruit, Angela. So I, I have a, a case from my childhood, actually, here. Back when I was a kid, you know, Power Rangers was a real big thing. So, of course, as every kid does, he wants to imitate his hero. So I went to the local Mervyn's and got myself this little necklace, all right? Hmm. Put it on. I was so happy, so excited. And then, you know what? Got this rash. Was I allergic to the metal? So that's actually an interesting question. So with metal and sort of like these nickel-type allergies, they're actually something called sensitivity and not allergies. So they're not mediated by IgE, per se, but you have chemical irritants to your skin, essentially. Okay. There are also many other substances that can cause allergies, such as latex and some of the proteins in milk, which can cause milk allergies in very young children. Sometimes people confuse lactose intolerance in milk with it being a milk allergy, when in fact lactose intolerance is that your body is unable to process the sugars in milk, and allergies are an are a response to the protein. In the end, whether you're sensitive to a particular substance or think you might be allergic to it, um, it might be better to just ask your doctor what to do. So as may be evident, there's a ways to go in order to understand allergies and also to potentially find a cure or prevention for existing allergies rather than just simply treating the symptoms as they arise. But now that we know most of the steps and processes involved in an allergic reaction, we can think about targeting any part of the allergic response, like the sensitization, the IgE, or the mast cell firing. Thanks for tuning in to Sit and Listen. We'll be back after the holidays with some more science fun. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback. So send us an email to sitnpodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions and our comments on our format. Until next time. <laughs> it seems like uh, getting a little bit dirty is a bit good for you now. Okay, I'm just wait, 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 wait. <laughs> wait. You got to get dirty to get healthy. I mean, it's just, it's just the way of the world.